Brother, I've been uh, studying for this month for my adult Sunday school class, and uh, I'm looking forward to to beginning that. Um, but this morning's a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit different topic. Um, one that I've looked at in the past, and one that's um, I think very important, and it has to do with uh, relationships. It's interesting, in the year 1905, there was a man by the name of Albert Einstein who wrote a paper and published it on the theory of relativity, you know, E equals mc squared. And since then, you've, you've heard terms such as truth is relative, and I don't think that's what Einstein meant when he uh, published that. But we hear it all the time, truth is relative. And as a Christian... You know, I want to say that I do believe that uh, ultimately that uh, reality is relative. It's relative in our relationship with God, how we relate to God. Uh, when we relate to God rightly, we relate to truth, do we not? Because we know God is, is the one who possesses it. And that's where we find, find meaning. We don't find it uh, in isolation. We find it when we relate to things. We find meaning when we relate to the one who has made us. We, re- we find meaning when we relate to those who God created. Uh, if you really think about it, some of our greatest blessings in life come from our relationships, you know, from our spouses, from our children, from our brethren. Those are some of the greatest bre- blessings that we have. and also some of the, the greatest heartache that we have when we have uh, an instance where we have a broken relationship with someone, where we have conflict with someone, that can cause some, some of the, the biggest heartaches that we have. And we live in a culture that celebrates men like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. These men are celebrated as, as man-made or self-made successes, self-made uh, success stories, and these guys are held up in, in business courses as, as models to look at as, as ones who, who put their nose to the grindstone and, and really made something for themselves. And, uh, you know, other places, you know, I grew up in the, the 80s and 90s, look at Hollywood, right? You know, you have movies such as, as uh, Conan and Rocky and and uh, one of my favorite uh, was growing up was Rambo, right? He was one man who who uh, could do what no no army could do all by himself, right? These these rough and tumble kind of guys. Or you go back to even John Wayne. John Wayne was he was a very strong strong man. <clears throat> uh, more recently, you have James Bond and Jason Bourne. You get your eyes turn your eyes to sports, right? You have most recently, Kobe Bryant. He was in the news quite a bit because of his recent passing. All of his accomplishments. Uh, you have other other big uh, celebrities and big stars. I was reminded of my favorite basketball player growing up, and that's Michael Jordan. Arguably one of the best basketball players ever to walk on the court. And I know if you're older than me, you probably say Will Chamberlain, newer. You know, people look at Kobe Bryant. But you look at his accomplishments, and he had some unbelievable statistics. Uh, he'd have have better statistics if he hadn't come back from retirement 32 times or whatever it was over his career. But he had some some amazing statistics. He had 30.1 uh, points per game, 6.2 rebounds, 5.3 uh, assists, more than one steal steal a game. Very high statistics. Unbelievable at times if you. You ever saw him play sometimes is quite amazing but then you have to ask yourself how many games did he win by himself how many did he win by himself well none basketball is a team sport well Michael Jordan he, he was starting to develop a name but until a man named Scottie Pippen came along and 
Dennis Rodman, he he wasn't as 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 uh, good as he was because he didn't have that team, that that teamwork together. You, know, you look at other other people like Tiger Woods. You know, Tiger Woods was a great golf player, but his dad invested so much time into him. His coach Butch Harmon invested and developed his stroke. And when they fired fired Butch Harmon, you know his he, Tiger Woods went down in more ways than one. You know, I'm not here to to shoot arrows at him, but you know it's he wasn't he wasn't all by himself in that. My point being is is that that. Society, while at times focuses on the individual, it's not just about the individual. At times we can see that history shows otherwise. You know, we talk about Easy Company. Have anybody ever heard of Easy Company during World War II? There's a a series on HBO that highlights them called the, The Band of Brothers. And they were this small battalion that went in and or a small company that went in and they were supposed to take out just a battalion. And when they get there, they find out they were facing, let's see, uh, I wrote it down. It wasn't, they weren't just a handful, it was a full battalion. Yet they came together against all odds. They defeated the enemy and they became the spearhead for the D-Day invasion. Without teamwork, they would have all perished. They would have all died. Brotherhood, you know, brotherhood, and I, and I use this term that brotherhood transcends gender. You know, brotherhood deals with 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 any group that comes together and bands together. You know, there's there's that's the idea that that we need one another. We need one another, right? We're we're not in this by ourselves. Before we get to some scripture, I want to look at one example in nature. So, uh, quite a few years ago, we had the opportunity to come down to Northern California f- for my cousin's wedding. And because it was in Northern California, we decided to take the opportunity to stop by and visit one of the, the greatest things California has to offer, and that's the Redwood Forest. Going through the Redwood Forest and seeing these, these ancient trees that were just so big in diameter and huge. And what's fascinating about, about them, being hundreds of feet high, they have a secret. And that secret is that their roots only go down four or five feet. That's it. Four or five feet. But they're all interconnected with one another. They're all connected to the trees. A 10-mile-per-hour wind would blow over one of those trees if they stood by himself. But because they all are interconnected, they have strength together. Now, is that just, you know amazing thing or is there a chance that God has used nature to show us the importance of our interconnectedness with one another our interconnectedness he uses those those metaphors those metaphors to show us all right enough enough of babbling I want to let's go to Exodus chapter 17 Exodus 17 we we see in nature Many different examples that God has shown us that life doesn't revolve around us. I think it's it's funny that you know we we begin to revisit this idea of how the Earth is, how the Earth relates itself in the solar system. Copernicus he he looked out and he saw and he saw that the elliptical patterns of the the planets and such. They didn't make sense in a geocentric model, meaning that everything rotated around the Earth. It just didn't make sense. And so it made more sense that it was a heliocentric, that life and Earth and everything revolved around the sun. It revolved around the sun, right? Maybe there's a chance that God designed it so we would know that life doesn't revolve around ourselves, that it revolves around Jesus Christ, the sun, the S-O-N, I, I just, God is, is amazing in those things. Here in Exodus 17, let's start in verse 10. Better stay on task here, right? Verse 11, or verse 10, yeah, excuse me. 
to verse 11. It says, And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the, mat- uh, top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. And so we, we see here we have this, this situation that's set up with this battle. And for some reason, Moses figured out when he held, holds up his hands that the Israelites prevail. Joshua prevails against the enemy, against Amalek. And so, right, just keep your hands up. Just keep your hands up the whole time, right? I don't know if any of you have done that. You know, we're, we're, we're not part of a denomination that sits there and holds their hands up in the air. But if you've ever been somewhere and you hold your hands up in the air, it can get tiring pretty fast. I did an endurance event a couple years ago where... For 12 hours, you know, we just we carried a whole bunch of heavy rocks and, and logs and stuff like that. And then at the end, they had us take our heavy backpacks and hold it over our, our heads. And whoever whoever lasted the longest, you know, they were, they were uh, um, I can't remember what they got. They got some sort of benefit out of it. All I know is I lasted 30 seconds. I mean, it was, I was, not only was I beat up and wore out by them, but just holding your hands up. So Moses, he, he, he started to lower his arms because... His arms got tired. Verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And so when Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and he sat on it. I'm not sure how that helped his hands, but it must have helped somewhat. But then, sitting there, we see that his his brethren, Aaron and Hur, they stood on each side. They held up his arms, and Israel prevailed. They weren't just helping Moses. They were helping everyone in that situation. Working together, bringing about victory, not for themselves, but for an entire nation. You know, in Scripture, we see men given together to the same mission, interconnected, interdependent, under the banner of Christ, under the banner of God, doing amazing things, victorious in many situations. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Jonathan, Jonathan and David. First Samuel 18. You know, Jonathan was the son of Saul, the king, right? Guess who was the next in line to be king? Jonathan. Guess who was a mighty warrior? Jonathan. In a couple chapters previous to them, him and his, his armor bearer, they scaled a wall and fought off an army of Philistines by themselves. He was a great, great, uh, uh, great warrior, an entire army. Jonathan had a royal lineage. Jonathan was a courageous warrior, and he was faithful to God. And then David comes along. David comes along, this this shepherd. Well, the shepherd's a little bit of a problem, right? He's a threat to him ascending his rightful place as, as the next king in line. Don't think he was ignorant of that. Don't think he didn't know that, didn't know that David was the anointed one. And so here in 1 Samuel 18... We're going to pick up in verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And you see kind of a repeat here that he that is found in scripture he loved another man as himself love someone else as himself loving one another as you love yourself brotherhood and strength those redwood trees that i've already mentioned that easy company that band of brothers verse 4 jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to david with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt now we can just see this as maybe Jonathan being kind to David, helping David out because he knew that David needed help. But in reality, he was giving David every semblance of his birthright. 
every semblance of his birthright. If you read two chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 15, that robe represented the throne. Go back to Joseph, right? Joseph in his, his coat. Joseph had that coat. What did that coat do? Well, he was the youngest. It enraged his brothers because it had a semblance of preference, a semblance of, of royalty, and they were furious. They wanted to kill him over it. And here, Jonathan freely gives it to David. Jonathan, well knowing that if I can do what I need to do to keep David safe, keep Saul at bay, that means I'm going to do it. He could just keep David at bay, right? And then, then what would happen? He'd have the throne. He'd be king. But he knew that he had to make a sacrifice in order for God's anointed to succeed. Who would I sacrifice for? Who would you sacrifice for? Let's say outside of our, the, our own blood and flesh of our family. Who would we sacrifice for? Who would we say, God, you know, I'm going to partner with them. Their success. I'm For their well-being, their spiritual growth, their vision, God, I commit my life to them to see them succeed. How many of us would do that? How, who, would I, who would I be willing to do that for? Jonathan was a truly remarkable man. And maybe it was that spirit that Jonathan had towards David that made David a man after God's own heart. He was that example of dedication. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Starting in verse 7, Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and began to send them out in pairs, and he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journeys except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. And we'll stop right there. Christ sent out the disciples in pairs. In pairs. Because he knew that two was greater than one. He knew that they need, they would need courage in what they were facing. He knew that they would need protection in what they were facing. He knew we needed those things. He knew that we had to be accountable to one another, right? Accountability is, is a, a very important thing in our walk with the Lord. And who holds us more accountable than the one that is there next to us doing the same thing? Imagine walking into a strange town. Guess who the first person that they probably met when they went into those towns? Anybody have a guess? Probably not who you would think. Most likely it was a prostitute. Think of Rahab, right? Rahab, she met the strangers when they came in. You think Jesus wasn't approached when he went into towns? We see that he ate with sinners. We see that he was in the company of, time, of, of people that the, the religious at the time couldn't understand. Do you think he might have been approached? Do you think that he knew that sending his disciples out, that they would not be approached? You know, just as, as men throughout time hunt, gather, and, and subsist themselves, it's one of the, the longest known professions because that's what they do to subsist themselves. And so Jesus would send them in pairs to keep them strong, not only against the, the, the Jews at the time who might persecute them, but also against the lust of the flesh against what they might encounter, the temptations that they might occur. Do you think the devil was not, hey, this is the beginning of, of the gospel. These are, these are the key players 
in, in the spreading of, he probably knew what was going to happen. Do you think that he would not attack the disciples in any way he could? And so Jesus knew what he was doing when he sent them out in pairs to strengthen them and to have someone that they would be accountable for. Let's go to chapter 14 of Mark. Mark 14. Our pastor recommended a, a book recently, and it and uh, apparently my wife has, has seen the movie before, but it's A Case for Christ. And it was fascinating because when they were talking about the Gospels, they talked about Mark. Mark, how, over half of Mark is deals with the last week leading up to the death of, of Jesus. And I, I never, you know, I, however many times I've, I've read through it, it never, never dawned on me the importance that Mark placed upon that particular time in Jesus' ministry. And so here in chapter 14, towards the end of the chapter, verse 32, we said, see that Jesus is in Gethsemane. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond, fell on the ground, and was praying that if it was possible, the hour might pass him by. And even though he meant a little bit further, Jesus was not alone. Jesus was not alone. At this time, even though he was the Messiah, the, the, the Son of God, he wasn't alone. <laughs> He had his brothers, his, his inner circle around him saying, please pray with me. Be by my side. Stay awake. Verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, does that not talk about us all the time? How many of us are willing? How many of us are, are zealous? How often does that flesh of ours just crumble? But having the strength of one another, being together, holding each other accountable, it was it's so important. Think about Paul and all the partners in his ministry. You know, he he's given a lot of credit because he wrote those letters, but what what was included in those letters? Names of so many men and women that helped him in his journey. A journey he would not have been able to do without his brethren. You have John Mark, you have Timothy, and you have Apollos and Barnabas and Priscilla and Aquila, on and on. You just read his letters and count the names that are written. Yes, you know, some of them he's calling out. He's kind of giving them a, 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 a spanking because, you know, they're not doing what they need to do. But even at, even, you know, I think it was, who was it, uh, one of them, he later on, he, he might have even been Mark. You know, he, it was either Mark or Luke. He first calls out, and then later on, he speaks highly of them. Now, there's so many names of those who helped out. So many people that wanted to partner with Paul in the in the gospel. It was amazing. You know, from the very beginning, God designed it this way. Let's go to Genesis chapter two. God designed it to be that we weren't alone in this. Even before the fall of fall of man, before sin came about, God knew, as we read here, what was best. Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You just look at the picture of, of marriage. God knew that we needed a life partner. And it's no consequence that at the very beginning that he established this relationship and then he would later on closely link the New Testament church to it. 
because he knew that we need to have strong life relationships to walk on this earth. It's not good for us to be alone. We come together and we partner to make it through this battle we call life. Now, you might be able to tell, but I've never had to battle that thing that's called weight gain. Now, you can throw tomatoes at me for my high metabolism, but it's never been an issue with me, right? It's never been an issue with me. (laughs) Dara. Uh, But the thing that I have to realize is that I'm not just me. I'm not just by myself. I'm part of a family. And so how, how am I a, a helpful spouse who's trying to be supportive of my wife eating healthier when I'm sitting there eating a pint of Ben & Jerry's ice cream, right? How helpful is that? How helpful is it to my family to try and be an example of, of living a healthy lifestyle if I'm not doing it myself? Now, I've... I've got, as I've gotten older, I've found that uh, I can't eat the way I used to. And so maybe I should have developed those practices a lot sooner. But I have to, I had to realize I'm not in it by myself. I have to just be supportive. A family is not each individual out for themselves. Think about Christ's prayer for his disciples in John 17. We won't turn there. You know, it's what's called the high priestly prayer. Prayer. It's one of the longest prayers that we have recorded of Jesus Christ. He gives his heart. He he reveals his heart in that prayer. He reveals his vision for this this idea of, of what he came for and what he's accomplished. He prays for himself. But he also prays for his disciples. He prayed for his disciples, and he, not only did he pray for his disciples, but he prayed for those who would come to believe through them. That's me, and that's you. Isn't that amazing that in his prayer, Jesus was praying for us? This is the, that we would come together through their testimony that would be you and me and us, that we'd be children, our children. You know, it wasn't some mystical New Age oneness that he was talking about. It was about a brotherhood. Let's go to John 17. We'll, we'll touch on it real quick. John 17. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as thou, as thou Father, art in me, and I in thee, and they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. He prayed for us. He prayed for us. We've had... I don't know about you, but I've had so many people come into my life. So many men and women that God sent into my life to help me. You know, the, the, the Stan Allens, the Dan Wheelers, the Jeremy Byers. They, they've helped me become who I am. My wife. My wife has been a, a great source of, of strength and encouragement. She helps me want to be a better person. I wouldn't be who I am today without them. That life that has been changed, made better, sharpened through friendships with other godly men. You know, we can get together. There's nothing wrong with getting together and talking about football and and talking about politics and things like that. But when we get together as, as brethren in Christ and we talk about 
these great gift of salvation and grace and mercy. Iron sharpens iron, as the proverb says. What greater thing can we have? That's what God intended for us. We can't miss out on those things. If you read in 1 John chapter 3, which we won't get to for time's sake, I've already been at this for 30 minutes. He says that brotherhood is the product of Jesus' sacrifice. It's the product of Jesus' sacrifice. Him dying on the cross doesn't make fellowship happen. It doesn't make brotherhood happen any more than simply adopting two kids and saying, okay, you're, you're siblings now. It's the life that we live for Christ. It's the bonds that we, we make in striving and persistence and in, in those things. My strongest, longest-lasting relationships outside of, of the church are two men that I served in the military with. It's, it's because of the things that we went through. Now, I, I didn't see combat or anything like that, but there were things that we went through and bonds that were, were forged and the things that we face. And that's what happens in the body of Christ. That's, that's what happens. And, and so as I mentioned there in 1 John, it says, We have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. How do, how do I know I have eternal life? Well, we know we have passed out of death into life because of the love we have for one another. What God has designed right here for us to relate to one another not because we're rugged individuals who are, are forging a path in life, not because we made it on our own and we're really strong and we're really tough, because we work really hard and we don't let anybody else into our lives. No, we have eternal life because of our love for one another, our striving together. Anyone who doesn't love remains in death. Apart from what God has designed, we die. We're vulnerable. We're weak. You may be strong in this world and, and have lots of money, but apart from Christ, we're told we can do nothing. Later on in the same chapter, it says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You have to know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in us. But that's how we know what love is. I thought I knew what love was when I first saw my wife. But the love that we have grown over the years through the experiences that we've shared, that is true love. That 18 years later, that my love is stronger for my wife than it was. And it's the same thing for God's body. His, his New Testament churches, as we, we go in and we learn what love is through the things we experience. It's almost like a, a snapshot of what Christ did for his, his disciples and for us. We're told to, to lay down our lives for one another. You know, John 15, 13, No greater love has any man than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. There's, there's a reason he said that. So what does that mean? Well, that means we lay down our lives for each other. Does that mean financially, if at times? Does that mean time? Well, what else do we have if, if not time? How, how long does it take even just to pray for someone, to pray for a brother? Not very long. We stop and we take that time for one another. We give our life for one another. My life has been changed, not because I've given monetarily, but because of giving my life for the Lord, giving my life for Christ, being with people who are doing the same thing for me. You know, it's because I had a phone call from someone I haven't talked to in years. After I resigned from being a pastor, 
He calls me and he says, Josh, you're not alone in this. Others have faced similar situations. Others have experienced the same thing you've experienced now. God is going to carry you through this. It's all right if you cry now. It's all right if you're angry, if you cuss. Because, yeah, I was angry. I was, I, was, I was angry. I was hurt. But that phone call from that brethren several states away, I'll never forget it. And you know, it led us to a different path. Led us to a, a church, you know, there that cornerstone to, for a group of people that showed what true love is, who would give their the shirt off their back for someone, who would who came together and, and worshipped with joy. It was a wonderful experience, and it's brought us here too, to a, a body here that. Is very special. And so we may experience bumps in the road, but our brethren who, who encourage us and strengthen us, they lead us to that next path, that path that God wants for us. All right. I better speed this up here. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of benefits. I've already touched on it, of brotherhood. Strength and protection. It should be easy for us to understand. Solomon wrote about this in Ecclesiastes. It says, Two are better than one, chapter 4, for they have good return of their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. God did not design our life to be walking alone, to be lone rangers, to be by ourselves. Because we have to admit there is evil in this world. And this evil goes after the weak. That's the nature of evil. And so we have to come together and and not live in isolation. <laughs> the kids the kids love watching uh, nature shows, not so much anymore. They're getting more into their, their cartoons and stuff, but they used to really love watching the, the nature shows. And I remember watching this one, and it was about uh, antelope in the safari, and there's a Swahili word for, for an antelope who gets separated from the, the, the crowd. And I can't remember the exact Swahili word, but translated dinner. Dinner. Because apart from the crowd, the lions, they, they'd sense it. And they'd pick them off. They'd run them down and chase them down. And we see in Scripture that that David, we've already talked about, at one point is alone. He's alone on that rooftop. And what happens? He's alone. His men are not around him. And instead of being with those who strengthened him and, and kept him strong and kept him accountable... Well, we know what happens. And as a result, the entire history of Israel changes because of his actions. <coughs> a man alone, I've heard the same before, a man alone is in the danger zone. A man alone is in the danger zone. That's what, the, what Satan wants for us, is to separate us, to get us alone, to isolate us. Because if he can isolate us, he can entangle us. And if he entangles us, well, then he can destroy us. Isolation leads to entanglement, which leads to destruction. We have to be careful. If we're not connected with, with godly men and godly women in our life who are keeping us accountable, it's so easy to get tripped up in the things of this world. I'm no better. I need godly men in my life. I need godly women in my life showing me every day to stay on course. I am. I, I can't tell you how incredibly blessed I am right now that I, I work with two members of this church. I don't get to interact with with uh, Jeremy too much because he's my boss, and, I, and we got to be careful that people don't get this idea that there's any type of nepotism going on. But guess who's sitting right next to me all day long? That guy right there. And if anybody knows Dara, 
He's the one that you want to sit next to you. His, his spirit. And I hope I've been able to do the same for him. Having that constant reminder that some of the guys in the yard, they have some interesting perspectives on life. And they're not the always the best examples to be around. And so I, I'm, I need that. And I'm, I'm thankful that I have that. You know, another benefit of brotherhood is your, the chance to grow and mature by being with one another, encouraging one another, not only just to simply be good, right? We're not just trying to be good. We're not trying to be good Christians. We're trying to grow. We're trying to mature. We're trying to grow to the full stature which belongs to Christ, as we're, said, we're told. And that's what we do for one another. We help one another out, being around godly people in our lives. Again, isolation, entanglement, and destruction. You know, most addictions, whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography, those things, they're not going to be overcome through isolation. Those things aren't overcome through isolation. I don't know what you, how you feel about AA and NA, but those programs work. And they work because they, they're... The people who are part of it, are they don't isolate themselves. They come together, they hold each other accountable, and, and they, they strengthen and encourage one another to do what is right. Addictions, again, are not overcome through isolation. We have the same thing in the original brotherhood, do we not? Long before AA and NA, there was brothers and sisters in Christ. Accountability, friendship, transparency, authenticity, commitment, challenging each other, iron sharpening iron. Don't you need that? I need that. You know, I used to believe that all I had to do was read my Bible and be a good person. I didn't need church. I'm good to go. I can tell you, those times especially in the military before I found the Lord, I wasn't a good person. Even though I had that Bible tucked away in my footlocker, I wasn't a good person. It wasn't until I became came around godly men and women that I learned that there's more to it than that. More to it. All right. I'll skip ahead a little bit here. That's, uh, I can't reiterate, this was God's intended plan. We can read in Hebrews 10 that we are to come together to stimulate one another in good deeds, not forsaking the times that we get together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as the day grows closer. I, I mentioned the other night at Wednesday night, there's a sense of urgency that is found in Scripture. Paul, or the Hebrews is sometimes attributed to Paul, but... Regardless of the fact this was written almost 1,900 years ago. He says, the day is growing closer. It's closer now, as I mentioned the other night. It's closer now. There's, you know, They talk about the biological clock of women ticking, right? At 30, they need to, to get married and have a family. because that's Well, our clock is ticking as Christians. It's ticking. Our, 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 the day is closer. Our top clock is ticking for God. It should be ticking to make disciples. It should be ticking to share Christ with people. Our, our clock is running down. Making an impact in this world is what God has asked us to do. That's another thing that, that's amazing about reading this book. If you haven't read it, A Case for Christ, it, it's amazing because just uh, uh, document-wise, archaeology-wise, everything just continues to reiterate that Jesus Christ who he was who he was. He existed, and he accomplished those things. And what, what's amazing is, is that no other recorded figure in history has made an impact on this entire world than Jesus Christ. And he's called us to do the same thing in our lives. Every day to go out and make an impact in our life. Make a, have a positive impact on someone's life. I've been, been trying to, to uh, be better organized in my life. To, to be better 
uh, useful in my day-to-day things. And watching, watching my wife with her planner, I thought, you know, maybe that's what I need. So I asked her to, to find one for me. And she found one, and it had, it had two different uh, versions. They had a, a 12-week version and a six-month version. And it, it took a while to figure out the differences. But I, I ended up going with the 12-week version because there's one thing that every day is written down. And it says, how am I going to help someone today? I've never, I, I don't know how often I wake up in the morning and all I think about is myself. Getting dressed, getting my lunch, going to work, wondering if I'm going to be bored at work today or if I'm going to do something. Being able to have something in front of me says, how am I going to help someone today? To me, that's the mind of Christ right there. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being more focused on that. And hopefully we can wake up every morning with the, the spirit of Christ saying, let's help one another. Our spiritual calling from God is, is not that rugged life. Our, our spiritual calling to God is, is to, to come together. It's not to just to come together and throw, you know, my, my spiritual service isn't driving the minivan to church and sitting down and, and singing a song and being quiet. Well, it's not a minivan anymore, but it's, it's not my calling. That's, that's not our calling to do that. My calling is not to, to, to just throw my tithes in, the, in the, the box back there. You know, even if I gave 20%, that's not my calling. You know, there's a Latin phrase, Latin phrase associated with that, and I had to, I had to wrote, write it down. It's a pro, pars pro toto, partial for a whole. It's supposed to be a representation that I am giving this part, and it's representing of my whole, because I'm going to give everything to you, Lord. I'm going to give everything to you, Lord, because that's what you want. If we woke up this morning, which obviously we did because we're here, if we woke up this morning, God has a mission for us. He has a purpose for us. Us being here together signifies that God has a purpose for us. He has a, a, a mission because that's how he designed it. Things all ha- things will happen if we step up to the plate, if we get off our soft and comfortable rear ends, put in it nicely, and stand up and take that next obedient step to God, we can do some amazing things as we see God's people do. All right, one last example. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. I appreciate your patience in this. I know I'm, I'm going a little bit longer. I, I haven't adjusted myself to... Uh, I'm so used to, to doing 45 minutes, so I'll try and... Hopefully it hasn't been that unbearable. Joshua chapter 1. One last picture has to do with Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Before crossing the Jordan to go into the Promised Land, they said, yeah, you go ahead. We'll take this this side of the Jordan right here. We're, we're good. It's much nicer than Egypt, but we don't. we're not interested in continuing on. And Joshua agreed to it. He said, okay, this is going to be your inheritance. So picking up in verse 14 of Joshua 1, said, Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. So he's telling them, you're not going to have peace until everyone has peace. You can you can very selfishly say, okay, we're good here. We're stop. See ya. Go on. Well, I don't even know why they settled for it. That's not what God promised them, but you know that was the deal. But they couldn't, God wasn't going to leave it at that. Joshua wasn't going to leave it at that. He says, you will not have peace until your brothers have peace. And so you must go. You must go. And when they were called, they went. They did it. Sometimes we, we can settle in our lives, but it's never too late to answer God's call to help one another. 
We're called to, to fight for our own lives, but also for the lives of one another, to help one another. It's, it's easy in our culture to isolate them, ourselves, it, it, more so now than ever. There, there are, are over in, in Japan, they have inter, interdiction for people who isolate themselves in their apartments, and all they do is play video games. That is not what God designed us for, to isolate ourselves. There's, there's huge consequences for those type of actions, even more so for us as God's children. Isolation, entanglement, and death. We're called to grow together, to pray for one another, to, to spend time with another. It's... it's it's interesting. Uh, a couple months ago, our pastor asked me to write down three things that I learned uh, from my time in Washington. And so I sat down and and I wrote some of the things that I observed and I gave them to him. And he says, well, no, he says, these things are great. These things you observe and you learn. I said, I want you to write down what you learned about yourself. I didn't hear him right the first time. And that's a lot harder to do. It's a lot harder to do, to, to be self-reflective, and I, I've been struggling with it. I haven't written anything down yet. But going over this, it, it reminded me of some one thing I did learn. And that is that I can't do everything by myself. I'm the type of individual where, where if I know something needs to get done and nobody wants to do it, I'm going to step up and I'm going to do it. It's just it's, it's something, something I, I've done and I took on more, and I took on more, and I took on more. And next thing you know, I'm having stomach pains. I'm pretty sure I gave myself an ulcer with how much stress I had in my life. And fortunately, I, I did have enough sound counsel in my life to, to, to reveal it to me, and so I stepped back. I stepped back from waiting tables, if you understand what I mean in the regard to the acts acts there and not only was it a benefit to me but you know what else I learned that I would by stepping back I had let, I created room for other people to step up in my effort to well this just this needs to be done and since nobody's doing it I'm gonna do it myself I was pushing people away I was pushing people out of the opportunity to do what God would it allow them to do? God called them to do. I cannot do it all by myself. Creating opportunities for others to grow. Bearing one another's burdens. And thus fulfilling the law of Christ. As Paul says there in Galatians 6. So. Alright, I'll stop there. Uh, thank you for your for your time. I know, again, a little late.